Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are presenting yet another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. One meaning of corona is a halo of light, and together we have been finding the silver linings in this pandemic. And normally, Tom, our listeners know that we're heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This episode will, will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We also like to give a shout out to our friends at the Augustine Institute and the Formed app, where Dr. Doctor can now be found as well. I'd like to mention that our listenership has more than quintupled in the last couple of weeks. And I was looking with my sons who are interested in geography at some of the sites where people have been listening. And there's this little tiny town, Priest River, Idaho, which was like number nine on the list of all cities in the world listening. So whoever is listening out in Priest River, Idaho, thank you very much. You've probably been, yes. I'm I'm just merely impressed that you use a word like quintupled. I think, that's, uh, <laughs> but but you're a, you're an obstetrician. You should know quintuple. Hopefully, you no. never have had to deliver them. No, not yet. <laughs> so today's guest, who has been social distancing with North Dakotans since 1889, although him not personally, Dr. Paul Carson, again updating us on the ever-changing recommendations on wearing masks, and really how public health doctors evaluate risk, because there's risk with everything. Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. Chris, great to be back with you again. Yeah, Paul, so, you've, been, you've just been a great resource for us and for our listeners. And on behalf of all the listeners of Dr. Doctor, thank you for your, your work and your expertise and your willingness to share it. I'm very happy to. Thank you. Uh, as one of my friends would say, Paul and I have been texting like a couple of uh, teenagers here <laughs> the last few days. And uh, one of the big topics is masks, not mass, Catholic mass, but masks. Uh, just two days ago, Friday, April 3rd, the CDC made a statement about the use of cloth face coverings, especially in areas of significant community-based transmission to help slow the spread of COVID-19. Now, at the beginning of the U.S. phase of this pandemic, I think it was one of the last days of February, our Surgeon General basically told Americans, get over it, don't buy and wear masks. What is going on, Paul? Yeah, well, I, as we've kind of talked earlier in the past, this has been such a bumpy ride and so many twists and turns that you need to have your seatbelt on because what we say you know, yesterday may be old news with not only tomorrow, but even within a few hours. So you're right. I, we, we've heard repeatedly uh, our public health officials saying the general public doesn't need to mask. And I would actually say even from the beginning that that sounded a little confusing because we would say, well, but we healthcare workers need to wear masks. That's and, a great point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, why is it good for us and not good for you? Um, I, I think that the, the earlier thinking was that, you know, you really needed more intimate or close contact with someone with COVID to be able to transmit. And that thinking has been changing as we learn more and more. Uh, I think the evidence and the reports that are coming out are suggesting a couple different things that have changed that thinking. One is um, that there may be a component of transmission that occurs before someone develops symptoms. And so that, that puts sort of a bigger pool of people out there that 
uh, might be transmitting because we've, we've emphasized if you're sick, pull yourself out, you know, isolate yourself, get yourself away from people. And I think that's still a very important strategy. But if we might be shedding virus even the day or two or three before we develop symptoms, well, then, you know, that makes it a much uh, um, dicier problem. And then the other thing is that there's, I think, a growing number of questions that this might uh, be spread not only by the larger respiratory droplets, by, but also by what we call aerosols, which we can get into more maybe in a bit. But that's what's sort of changed, and it's made these uh, masking directions uh, uh, that are coming from public health uh, to be much broader. And, and it's interesting, you know, I, I walked into the hospital, I think on Thursday, Paul, and I got attacked by what I might think of as the nursing mask Nazi, and um, telling me and my colleague that we had to put on these non-N95 masks. And um, it seems like part of the challenge in thinking through is a little bit of maybe healthy narcissism. We're trying to say, is this going to help me or is it going to help somebody else? And I just want to know the answer. I'm, it's not that I'm not willing to do something to myself to help someone else, but yet it seems to be difficult, even as a healthcare worker in a hospital, to get a straight answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it would be helpful. I, I don't know kind of when and where you want to sort of dig into the nitty gritty of this, but I think it might be helpful to kind of walk through what we thought we knew what we know now and how that applies to that question you just asked, Chris. That's which great. I, I think is the real important question. So is that okay with you, Tom? Let's kind yeah, of just- Yeah, let's uh, start with, you know, two or three weeks ago even. Yeah. So, uh, well, let me go even a little further back than that. When I kind of went through all of my medical training and infectious disease training, we were taught there that, you know, infectious diseases are transmitted one of a handful of different ways by direct contact, touching someone by vectors like mosquitoes and ticks and so on by droplets and by airborne transmission. And we kind of divide things that way in, in public health. Um, and then uh, the other categories like food and waterborne illnesses. So focusing on the droplet and the airborne, uh, we sort of drew this hard line between some things are droplets and some things are airborne. Well, what, what does that mean? Uh, droplets have been thought of as these larger um, uh, drops that are ejected when we cough, sneeze, and sometimes even talk or sing. And, uh, and a lot of diseases have been thought to be transmitted that way. A lot of the respiratory diseases like influenza and pertussis and colds, and you know, which is rhinoviruses and the other types of coronaviruses. Um, many, many diseases are thought to be spread that way. And those droplets get ejected and drop in about two, three, four feet. Even with okay. a high speed sneeze or cough. So we'll get to that. So okay. uh, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a great question, but, but um, it, it was thought that you needed to be relatively close to someone and, and maybe even for more prolonged periods of time to get one of those types of infections that are carried in those bigger droplets. And then the other line was sort of that some things might be airborne, which is tiny, what we call droplet nuclei, much smaller, uh, like in the neighborhood of five microns, where the larger droplets might be uh, around 100 microns. Um, and the airborne things are like tuberculosis and measles and smallpox and chickenpox. <laughs> Those are the things that uh, if somebody comes in a room, for example, and sheds measles, they may leave and be gone for several hours, and you could come in hours later and still acquire that infection. 
those tiny droplets stay in the air suspended for hours. And And Paul, something I've noticed between those two that really made, brought this home to me Mm -hmm. is the reproductive number of things spread by those two. So I think uh, the reproductive number, basically how many people that are expected to catch a disease when no one has immunity. And it was like, what, 12 to 15 for measles per person, where it's only maybe two and a half for COVID. That's right. So you see these Air, you know, traditional airborne diseases as being far more infectious. I mean, you think about what happened, you know, ages ago when smallpox was introduced yes. into the uh, into Central America, and it infected ninety percent of uh, the Native Americans in um, in Mexico and uh, Central America. And uh, so those those diseases that are spread that way are are devastating and much more contagious. Well, we, we sort of drew this line and said, some things are in this one box and the other things are in this other box and sort of near the twain shall meet. And we, we, we lumped SARS coronavirus in with the droplets. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you just mentioned, uh, what about these sneezes and you know, things that are going maybe 12, 15, 20 feet? So uh, uh, people can go out on the internet today. You go on YouTube and look at uh, you know, these high speed uh, and... Um, uh, fancy uh, photography that captures these tiny droplets and how far they travel and where they go. And you can see these just awful looking uh, videos, videos that you know, just look absolutely terrifying of the, this cloud of droplets of all kinds of sizes going um, anywhere from you know, a couple feet to 15, 20 feet. And then a number of these other really tiny ones staying suspended in the air for minutes. And then the ones that we can't see with that methods, maybe for hours. And, and, so one thing that's been happening is people are looking at these and going, oh my goodness, I mean, uh, if this is, if, if these things are all over the place, even when they're talking and when they're singing. And uh, um, is that all contagious to me with uh, SARS coronavirus? And, and the, the real answer is, is we don't know. Um, uh, so all that shows is that when we cough, sneeze, talk, lots of different sized droplets, go all over the place and some stay suspended for long periods of time and some don't. What we don't know is do those tiny ones that stay suspended for longer periods of time carry enough virus to be infectious with SARS coronavirus. Does that make sense? Yes, you sent me that great um, article from The Atlantic that I'm going to have our producer link on the podcast. Um, and they explained it pretty well in that article that you can even find RNA across a hospital room from where somebody's been, right. but they don't know if it's live virus or, and or infectious. And that'd be a, that would be a tough experiment, both ethically and technically to do. T- tough to experiment, point, I, yeah. I think the fact that we have to say we don't know that's something we're not used to saying, but that's right. probably one of the most important takeaways, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, so Paul, here, I- two weeks ago, <clears throat> I interviewed a, a physician in Hong Kong who's lived through the original SARS and is living through COVID now. Mm-hmm. And he was adamant telling Americans, you guys need to wear masks. And then yesterday he sent me a, a video I sent you from the Czech Republic. You know, the Czechs are saying, you know, we have really flattened our curve and made our curve very small because in addition to all the things you Americans are doing, everyone's wearing a mask when they go outside. (laughs) Are they onto something? Are they an outlier? Are there other countries that kind of show that this might not be the case? That is, um, so I looked at that video and 
I, this I think is a really important point. Like when you hear these sort of claims, this is why we're so much better than the rest of you, right? <laughs> is that there's a whole bunch of variables in there that they aren't showing or telling us. So the, the, the lady who gave the video said, see, we in the Czech Republic, we wear masks and we have hardly any cases. Well, go out there and look and find out how much testing is being done in the Czech Republic. You can't find it. Ah. Um, and, and, uh, um, and so we have no idea if they're finding their cases or not. Are they really aggressively looking? And, and when you look at, uh, you know, there's indirect evidence for and against this in a bunch of different places. In China, they, they mask like crazy. I mean, yes. it's like part of their culture. Well, yes. that's where it all exploded. I mean, as soon as it was kind of appearing there, people were masking ubiquitously, um, but it still exploded in the province of Hubei. Um, so there's just too many other variables to say that that's the thing that kept the Czech Republic out of trouble or- Thank you. And, and why, didn't, why didn't it keep China out of trouble? Yes. And, and yet did Taiwan mask because they've done an outstanding job do they mask like china they they did so a lot, most of the asian countries do a lot more masking than we do it's much more culturally acceptable it's actually looked at as a sign of you caring about each other as opposed to you're ill or sick or weird um and uh and they did but they also were really aggressive about their testing uh travel restrictions um, and right. case finding, isolation, quarantine. So they which was it? it? Yeah, or was it all, all of it? it. Exactly. Right. So right now, the claim the CDC is making is that we, by wearing a mask, might help others, but not ourselves. Is that correct? I think that's a safe thing to assume. So one thing that we can show is that when you wear a mask and you cough or sneeze or talk or whatever, the droplets get blocked. I mean, you don't shoot nearly the volume out. They can kind of come out the side sure. uh, or maybe kind of go up a little bit up in front of your forehead or they, they, or they get trapped in the mask itself. So I, I think we can probably safely say that uh, you very likely markedly diminish your expulsion of a variety of sizes of droplets uh, when you wear a mask. And we, we've done this for a long time. If we have a sick person with an airborne transmitted disease like tuberculosis or chickenpox, and they have to go down to get an x-ray or a CAT scan or something, we put a mask on them in addition to trying to, you know, uh, minimize their being out and about out of their, out of their isolation room. Now and to clarify, Paul, we should say we're not talking about the special N95 mask that many of our listeners are hearing about. We're yeah. talking about a basic surgical mask and that really is nothing more than a piece of cloth for all intent and purposes, isn't it? Yeah, the, the surgical mask is actually a, a, a fiber that's put in several different kind of a, a, a crossing layers that, that is very efficient at uh, decreasing uh, moderate-sized particles from going in or going out. So let's talk about the three kinds of masks. Mm -hmm. So you've got the N95s, which are uh, specially designed to be very high-filtering uh, masks. And N95 stands for? You know, I don't. That's probably ninety-five percent uh, reduction of drop of uh, smaller droplets. Do you? you do you, I, don't, I think that's, that's correct, but I just yeah. want to confirm that. Yeah, I, that would be my guess, but I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. um, N95s are also made to fit very tightly against your face, and we we go through what's called fit testing to make sure you've got the right size and that it fits you well and is and is decreasing uh, any entry of uh, even small particles, very tiny particles. Those we really need to preserve for healthcare workers that are on the front lines doing 
high-risk procedures, taking care of COVID patients where, like in a ICU where they're on a ventilator and there's a lot of different um, uh, uh, possibility of uh, transmitting uh, aerosols. And the, uh, um, then the surgical masks um, are not as high at filtering uh, these tiny uh, particles and they aren't very good for true airborne diseases. We would not use those going into a room with somebody with smallpox, which isn't around anymore. But if, uh, if it were, we wouldn't use a surgical mask. We'd use an N95. But they're pretty good at, draw, at, at stopping the entry and the exit of the sort of medium-sized uh, and larger droplets. And then there's cloth. <clears throat> and, um, and so, uh, and we, we really don't have a lot of information about what like making a cloth mask really does. The little bit of information that we do have is that they're not very good at protecting someone from inhaling uh, droplets. Um, a, there was one study that was done in, in the UK where they had healthcare workers wear cloth masks versus surgical masks. And they, and they did this over the whole span of a flu season and there was about twice the rate of influenza-like illness in the cloth mask wearers compared to the um, uh, surgical mask wearers. What we don't know is, did that diminish them infecting other people? And it probably does, but we don't have any data on that. Well, maybe we just, think about it practically, oh, I, if I, nothing I else, maybe, audio, it, Go ahead. Maybe, maybe it diverts you know, the, the, the droplets, at least laterally, so you don't get this rocket launch of, exactly, exactly you know it's interesting a hundred years ago when i was a medical student <laughs> in surgery i remember being taught if you had to sneeze during the surgery don't dare turn your head away keep your head oh, facing forward sure uh, for that very reason it may go out the sides but at least you won't have a projectile or at least a reduced one in front yeah as so a surgeon Paul, what as, a, as, as a surgeon chris you might uh, uh be surprised to learn that the evidence for you surgeons wearing a mask in the operative theater um, really isn't very good evidence that you're doing much with that. It's sort of a traditional thing. Um, and it probably is a good idea not to sneeze into the surgical field, right. but, the, but the evidence for how well it helps diminish um, you know, surgical wound infections isn't very good. Well, Paul, that's why in my specialty in most surgery and where I trained, we didn't wear masks. And I found the same data. The only thing that really was beneficial were gloves and they didn't even have to be sterilized gloves, just gloves out of a box mm -hmm. can be used, as well as eye protection. Mm -hmm. Those were the two things that were key, and that's what we've always done. Now we're wearing masks, not for ourselves so much. I just don't want to breathe something that I have asymptomatically or my nurses have into our patients' faces. Right. Boy, we are, we are really attacking a surgical dogma there, aren't we? Yeah, I know. That yeah. tradition is, is so old. <laughs> Very uh, entrenched. Well, yeah. then, then you go to booties and the little head coverings they wear, which also the, the evidence is weak to none. Isn't that right, Paul? I think that's true. The, the, the evidence is very good that, you know, the type of antiseptic you use and, uh, you know, before yes. you make your cut, getting antibiotics timed right before you make your cut. Yep. Um, there is some evidence that uh, well, certainly good, the hand, the uh, hand washing beforehand, yes. probably the draping uh, does help. Mm -hmm. um, we found that with line infections, it, it decreases yep. the rate of line infections, but um uh, which of those is the most important or which is the key? Not really. They're all bundled, you know, so we, it's hard to tease out which is the most important. So, so why well, did oh, the I'm CDC sorry. at this point decide to say this? What happened that Friday, two days ago, they came out and recommended 
cloth face coverings? Hmm. I, I think uh, just like you heard from your colleague in Hong Kong, lots of people are hearing and seeing the, that sort of admonishments like uh, these Asian countries that are, have worked its, their way through it a little faster than us kind of think we are crazy that we're not more universally masking. Um, I think so peer pressure, international I think there, peer I th- pressure. I think, I think there's some international peer pressure and, and you, you know, I I've had actually, uh, you'll get a kick out of this time. I've had a dermatology colleague, um, <laughs> probably emailing me every day. Like, why aren't you saying more about everybody masking? And I think we need to, you know, sort of everybody's an amateur epidemiologist now and public <laughs> yes. health expert. Yes. And, uh, and he's just been, been on me about this. And, uh, I think he thinks I have a lot more power and authority than I, uh, <laughs> than I do. But, um, uh, but you know, there's a lot of pressure, peer pressure out there about doing more. And I think this issue with people seeing these droplets that are all kinds of sizes and, and, and floating in the air and, and, um, and this pre-symptomatic question. The other thing is, is that there's a few of these disturbing uh, episodes that happen, and it happened with the original SARS outbreak too, of these kind of super spreader events, mm-hmm. which are hard to explain except for maybe a, an aerosol um, and the smaller uh, droplets. I think there's, I think these are, you, you know, we don't really understand them. I think these are unique episodes, but it suggests that sometimes in some circumstances, aerosols might be playing a role. And I don't know if you've read this, but um, yes. about this uh, uh, choir group in, um, in uh, wa- the state of Washington, yes. you know, they, they really weren't having any cases, I think, in their county. And it was a Presbyterian church that said, you know, let's ha- we're going to have our choir practice after all. And, you know, let's kind of get together. We need this. And, uh, they had and it was our- before social distancing rules were in place. Right. It was before the social distancing, rule, distancing rules were in place. Even th- so, they all did, you know, hand hygiene before they went in. They kind of tried to uh, practice a little bit uh, more spread out. And 45 out of 60 members of that choir ended up getting infected. And, and no one knew that anyone was sick uh, to begin with there. So th- those kind of episodes are very troubling and uh, have kind of made people rethink, do we need to do more? So, Paul, if we had to summarize with a big caveat saying to our to our ability to know, would it be correct to say a simple piece of cloth may provide some protection of me infecting others? A surgical mask might do the same, but maybe a little better. Uh, And the N95 mask would be the gold standard. Nothing in, nothing out, um, at least to our ability to say. I think that's right. I, I might add, that that's a good way of sort of framing it. The first two are probably really um, may very well be helpful at protecting others. Mm-hmm. The surgical masks might give me a little protection. Not not completely clear here yet. Um, N95s are the gold standard, but there probably is no harm in wearing the cloth masks and maybe a benefit to others. You know, something I've noticed in talking to colleagues just this weekend in the hospital is. I didn't realize what a terrible habit I have of licking my finger to turn a page. Yes, yes. And if you have a mask on, you can't do that. Yes. <laughs> so, so there's a really interesting discussion about um, uh, the sort of psychology that goes along with masking of both being good and maybe bad. And I, I, here's another one we don't know the answer to. So on the, on the good side of things is there's a thought that by seeing each other with masks on, it sort of raises awareness in our mind. Like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to be careful here. We're trying to not get each other infected. Maybe I'll do a little more social distancing. 
um, and, and it reinforces, uh, you know, the positive behaviors. On the negative side, there's people that are saying um, that maybe it, it actually leads to people kind of a touching their face more because they're moving their mask around and jimmying with it and monkeying around with it. And maybe it leads to the opposite. It might lead to risk compensation where I say, oh, I've got a mask on. I'm, I'm, I'm a little safer. I can probably do a little bit more or sure. some things that I wouldn't have done. I, I was asking one of my psychiatry colleagues, I said, what do you think? Well, you know, which one is it? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like sunscreen too. People stay out in the sun longer because they think they're protected. Ah, well, well, given, given those realities, um, paint for our listeners a, an idea of when should they put on a mask to go out into a public sort of arena? Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I had to go to the grocery store yesterday and I was really conflicted as to whether I was going <laughs> to wear a, a mask or not, because I still have in my own mind, this sort of stigma with it. Like it's kind of the Michael Jackson thing or, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, um, <laughs> uh, you know, this is just a little bit weird. Um, and I noticed that maybe in the grocery store about, just I'd don't see. wear your white glove and you'll be fine. <laughs> one, one, <laughs> one white, white glove, glove and then my mask. Yeah, singular, yeah. right. <laughs> and I, I noticed that uh, probably at, at best, maybe 5% of the people were wearing masks in the grocery store yesterday. Um, but with the CDC recommendations, I think we should start trying to get over our, our, our sort of mental stigma with this. And mm -hmm. I, I think it's not a bad idea for us to be doing this to try and protect one another. Decrease so Paul, what materials, my wife's a seamstress, uh, uh, our producer picked up material the hospital locally handed out to make yeah. these masks. What yeah. is the best material they can use? So that's a great question. I've been trying to dig around to look for that as well. I had one of my grad students write a little brief on this. What doesn't work is like t-shirts and, um, and knit material that has bigger, you know, kind of mm -hmm. pore sizes, if you will. Um, one of the papers that was written on this suggest, uh, suggested using a material I'm not familiar with. Tea cloth um, uh, as one layer, a middle layer of like a fleece, and then tea cloth on the uh, other side. So Is that T-E-A or just yes, the letter T? T-E-A, T-E-A, tea cloth. Tea cloth plus? Yeah, fleece in the middle. Plus and then fleece. Tea, and then tea cloth on the other side, a triple sandwich. layer thing. Yep, a sandwich. Um, and then other uh, ones have talked about that it's better to have a woven fabric or a cotton weave. And you actually um, asked me about one of them and you used a term I, I'm not a, I don't sew, I don't do materials. And it was like batics or something like that. Um, uh, I think you were asking me about that time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to see quilted cotton. Quilt, quilted cotton. I think that's the same thing as this. It's, it's something like Badex uh, or something to that extent, but that's a, a woven, a thicker woven fabric is thought to uh, decrease um, uh, the ability of uh, droplets to penetrate. Um, you know, in the study that I told you about where they used, basically it was just sort of regular cloth or cotton. They all, in addition to the workers that wore that and got more influenza, um, they also looked to see how much penetration of sort of medium sized uh, aerosols that, that went through or droplets, I should say. And it, it's anywhere from like 50 to 90% will penetrate. So we need to have, I think these pr preferable more layers and, um, and woven layers of fabric uh, is, is um, uh, looks to be uh, better. That sounds good. And how often would they need to be washed and how should they be washed? Who knows? Good question. Um, I would, um, I, I would say, you know, if you could do that, 
I mean, there, there's the aesthetics of it. And then there's the practicality. What, what, if, if the main goal is to prevent me from ejecting droplets on you, as long as it's not moist and, um, you know, kind of gummed up, uh, it, it probably is going to do that job. So it's, I, I think if you could do that daily, that would probably reason be reasonable. Okay. But even after two, three days, I think is probably okay. If, as long as it's not overly. So soil. Thursday or Friday, you gave me very practical advice. I shared with my partners who are going to follow through on this. And that is we have a very limited, we have no N95s in our practice. We have a mm -hmm. limited supply of surgical masks, yep. which we're quickly going through. You said that there is a safe way that we can um, make sure they're reusable. Would you yeah. tell our listeners that? Yeah. So, uh, and, the, and actually the CDC has come around to say this as well. And, uh, that is if you take, uh, if you take the surgical masks or if you're using, even if you're using N95s, if you're in the, if you're a healthcare worker and you're using N95s, one of the things we're recommending is maybe give, uh, each healthcare worker their own stash of like five masks. You wear mask one on day one, uh, put that in a little, at the end of the day, you put that in a breathable paper bag, set it aside with one tick mark on it that you've had one wearing of it. Day two, you wear mask number two. Um, same thing at the end of the day, put that in bag number two with a little tick mark on it that you've used it once and so on down the line for five days in a row. Then on day six, you go back to your first mask and put that one back on. It is now sat in a bag uh, for the span of over four days. Um, and we know that the virus decays pretty well on, on almost any surface by 72 hours. And then on, on um, porous surfaces, it's probably faster than that. Virus decays markedly by 48 to 72 hours. If you leave that in the bag for four to five days, uh, most virus, if it even were there, should be gone or decayed. So even if you were breathing it in from one of your patients that you didn't know about, and, and you got virus on there by putting it in that bag for several days, um, you've likely decontaminated that mask and can reuse it again. And so you can repeat that probably for up to five wearings, four to five wearings. So those five masks should last you like a month. So let's move on to the second half of the interview. And that is the concept of risk. And this was brought home to me by, uh, an economist that uh, Andrew and I interviewed last week, you've listened to it. His name is Tim Reichert. And he thought that even economically, we shouldn't be deciding on appropriate behavior based on essential versus non-essential activities, but instead of low risk of transmission versus high risk of transmission activities. How does that strike you, Paul? I thought that I, I encourage all of your listeners to go back and listen to your podcast with uh, Tim Reichert. I learned a lot from that one and I uh, thought he was brilliant. Um, I think that's exactly right. So how long are we really going to be able to sustain uh, living in a bubble where no work, commerce, business, uh, et cetera, happens at all? And at some point we have to start trying to do, I think, an assessment of what things can we do that might have acceptable risk uh, or lower risk. I, before we start entertaining that, I'd like to see us get through the first surge or wave that I think we're going to see probably in the next uh, one to three weeks in most places in the country. I think we're going to peak sometime here in most places around mid-April. Now, when you say peak, peak cases or peak deaths? Because won't peak deaths follow peak cases? Yes, peak deaths will follow peak cases. And actually, that's one of the it's an aside, but one of the interesting things uh, that's uh, that got a lot of people thrown off at the beginning was not accounting for for that when we were they were calculating case fatality rates. Is you'd look at how many deaths there were and how many cases there were, and 
and you got one number, but a lot of those deaths aren't going to occur for three, four or five weeks. I mean, some of these people are in the ICU for, for mm -hmm. weeks. Um, so I'm talking about cases. So I think peak cases uh, by most models and predictions is going to uh, happen at most places in the U.S. sometime in the next uh, couple of weeks. And I noticed that the doubling time keeps increasing. Like a few weeks ago, it was like every two or three days, the number of cases in the U.S. would double. Now, I counted today, it was like at eight days for the country. Yeah, you're, Is that a good sign? That hopefully is a good sign. Uh, we still... We still are getting pretty uh, rapid growth, and in, in, in the hotspots like New York, I mean, they're just there's still just huge numbers of new cases each day. But uh, you know, back to your question about uh, what things might we do with lower risk, I think we should start really thinking hard about that when we're past this crest, because um, we don't want to be, you know, trying experimenting with um, more uh, activities until we're, we're past the worst of this. But once we are, um, I think we should start thinking hard about what kinds of activities can we do that we don't have a, a lot of close interaction with each other. And, and there probably are a number of things. Uh, like your, uh, your guest, Tim Reichert said, you know, manufacturing in some places can be done kind of fairly far apart from each other. Um, I, one of the things we're very interested in and, uh, um, and are, are working very hard in North Dakota to get our hands on and do some research with, as well as public health interventions, is to get an antibody test online. Yes. And once we can start testing people to see who's been infected uh, yeah. who, and who is immune, those people, we can get them back to work. Uh, we can get them back on the front lines of taking care of patients. We can get them back into their businesses. Um, they should not be a risk to others, nor should others be a risk to them. Because we think it's a durable uh, immune response? We do. We don't know that yet, but we have examples. So with both MERS, uh, Middle East Respiratory mm -hmm. Syndrome, which is another coronavirus, and the original SARS uh, um, coronavirus, uh, they've looked at those people years out, even up to 10 years out from uh, the original SARS, and they still have neutralizing antibodies present. This idea, though, Paul, of um, relative risk, you could almost think of it as relative harm. And I've talked to some people in the business community that are saying, how do you, in an, almost an unpopular, unacceptable way, say, if this industry closes, it's going to create harm. If the industry reopens, it may create harm. How do we as a society try to use the tools that you've mentioned to try to make some intelligent decisions on relative harm? And I think the answer is we just don't know yet, but it's something we're going to have to ask but everyone is afraid to pose that question, I think. Yeah, Chris, I think that's such a good point. And, and it seems almost uncomely to ask the question, mm. you know, like, well, how much harm is, is, are we doing by closing business? So, you know, we want to do everything to save lives from the infection right now. But as your guest, Tim Reichert said, what happens when, when businesses close and don't come back online and you have massive unemployment? What does unemployment bring? As he said, increased Jeez. drug use, increased opioid use, uh, increased depression, increased problems with anxiety, increased in suicides, probably even increased cardiovascular risk. And, and, and that, that has long-term effects actually on our immune function and cancer protection and so on. We need to start asking those questions uh, uh, that in a much broader risk-benefit analysis, uh, which we probably don't have the the really the the math to be able to do. But there's certainly a trade-off here that is bringing other harms that we need to start thinking about and taking into account. 
So Paul, if we could look through some of the different things, I've got a list of 10 things here uh, about how we can mitigate risk and how important you think they are. I think we'll start with the easy ones. Frequent hand washing or sanitizing. No brainer. We should be doing it a lot. Uh, you told me your hands are getting raw. Awesome. Oh no. Yeah. I've been, my, my <laughs> palms have peeled. I mean, <laughs> on the floor when I come home at the end of the day and of yeah. course I have to sweep it up. Secondly, yeah. social distancing. That's the tough one. Um, right now, I think it's vitally important and to, so that we can flatten our curve, not have New York repeat and new, you know, cities in New Jersey, Connecticut, repeating uh, what they're experiencing, which is, you know, drowning, uh, barely keeping their head above water in their healthcare systems. The social distancing is our greatest tool to flatten the curve, but it's our greatest, uh, you know, cost. And um, at some point, we're going to have to figure out what's an acceptable balance there. And then you've already covered the cloth mask in public, not shaking hands. Uh, I think that's going to be something we're going to need to practice for a while. And maybe we become a little more, uh, again, like some other countries, uh, namaste in India, you know, where you kind of do the little <laughs> bow with your hands folded together. And uh, what does um, namaste that mean? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I, I know that's the term for, you know, where you see, you see people kind of put their, put their hands like in prayer and then bow each other and bow and bowing in the Asian countries. Uh, I don't know how well elbow bumps are going to stick, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but bumps, I, I do yeah. think we need to kind of think about other greetings here in the age of pandemics. And how about one of the hardest, I think, not touching your face. Ooh, that uh, so hard. That's really hard. I think they've done, done some studies where they actually observe, you know, have sort of secret shopper kind of people observe. People, and it's like, <laughs> It, 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 we do it all the time. Right. It's it's unconsciously, you know, subconsciously, unconsciously. I I don't know how we get that, and I'm I'm very curious about whether masking improves that or worsens that. Or maybe hand washing. Maybe we can't change touching our face, but we touch our face with yeah. cleaner hands. Yes, exactly. Maybe yes. we're better off. Exactly. Now, about, one of my favorites, if we're going to myth bust, is this whole idea of husbands and wives for generations have been fighting about the toilet lid. Um, could you once and for all uh, put one of those two groups in their place? Okay, lid up, so, lid down, does it matter? Yeah, right. So if I'm going to make my wife happy, lid down it, guys. <laughs> uh, guys out there, lid down. Um, in fact, I was just admonished about that again yesterday. <laughs> um, uh, no, we, but, need to be, we need to be specific though, don't we? Lid yeah. down prior to flushing. Right. Uh, so here, here's what's behind that is that there's several studies that have shown um, that you can find RNA of the virus in stool. Um, in fact, you can find a lot of it. Uh, but here's what you don't hear after that. And this, this gets to this whole issue of what we don't know. If you try and culture the virus from stool, you can't. Oh. Um, and so d does is that dead virus or, or viruses aren't really alive. They're, right. they're, they're a weird kind of thing. They, they're not what we actually call like a living organism. Right. Um, uh, it's a, just a piece of genetic material encapsulated usually in protein. And they rely on parasitizing us to, or other uh, organ uh, organisms to reproduce. But there, is it active? If is, is it able to infect or is it inactivated? And, and it looks like in stool, you can't, you can't grow it. So what is that? viral RNA that you can find in large amounts in stool matter. We don't know, but it's not a, it's not a hard thing to do, all of us, to close the lid when we flush the toilet. Because the thought is, is when you flush the toilet, maybe you generate aerosols. And you, right. there is evidence of that, that are we aerosolizing virus? Uh, you know, when you do that, don't know. Is it, are you aerosolizing 
you know, RNA that can't infect, infect us, don't know, but there's no downside to us closing the lid when we flush. And there's a big upside with our wives, right? And our wives will be happier. So uh, what, what I noticed at work is the toilets at work have seats, but no lids. Yeah, right. So if that's, a, if that's like a big that. deal, that if, if that's a big deal, then we might be having a tough time uh, with our toilets at work. I, I, don't, I personally don't think this is a big okay. deal or mode of transmission. The th thing I think about often are doorknobs, touching doorknobs. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, we've talked about at, at where I work, although now nobody's the university's closed, so I don't have to worry about this much anymore, but uh, was they were doing uh, a, a big enhanced schedule of cleaning uh, with disinfectant of all kind of touch surfaces, contacts, the, the high contact surfaces like doorknobs, rails, um, you know, uh, sink handles, et cetera. And do you think that it is something we should avoid touching? If you can, yeah. So like if you can do the little kind of hip bump on the doors that have the, uh, you know, the push bar or yep. uh, that sort of thing, yeah, you can do that. But I, I don't know that we, I, I think if, what I think about is if I can get one of those little pocket uh, Purell containers. Uh, yes. You know, when yes. I'm kind of going, I'll open my doors, I'll get into my office and I'll put my Purell on and go to work. Um, okay. Here's a big one for New York City. Yeah. Elevators. Oh, tough. Um, I saw. Yeah, it's a closed space. Can't really get out of each other's face. Um, I have seen discussions about uh, waiting longer and, you know, putting less people on the elevator. I would say this is a good time to start taking stairs. Or wearing a mask. Would you wear or a mask? wearing a mask. Yeah, right. That would if be a key have, place. Yeah, it, that's, that's a good thought, Tom. So like if you're having to be out in, in, in public and having to use elevators and that sort of thing, I think masking would be a very good idea there. You know, something about masking, maybe we will impress upon our listeners, but I think typically when we've seen people in an airport, uh, maybe coming from an Asian country in the past with a mask on, we've thought, oh, you think I'm going to give you something. Right. When in, in reality, we should not not shake their hand, but wave at them and say, thank, thank you for you. trying to protect me. Yes. So exactly. masking when we leave our homes, um, it, it's a solidarity gesture. Exactly. Yes. It's yes. trying to help others above ourselves. Really. Well said. Well said. Paul, in that article you sent me from the Atlantic, I read something resonated with me greatly that uh, one of the uh, interviewees said, and she said that she pretends when she is out that everybody is smoking and she's trying to avoid their smoke cloud. Yeah. yeah. What did you, what did you think of that? I, I thought that was a, that was a kind of clever way of, of how to picture it. Um, you know, I, I, I was listening in on, uh, uh, it was a CNN town hall meeting where anybody could call in with Facebook and, and there was two or three questions, uh, from people going, I like to run outside and I, you know, I still want to go to the park and do I have to worry about everybody who's kind of right around me? And, and, you know, they were giving advice to like, maybe you kind of give a little more birth to the people running, you know, by you and, and all of that. I think that's reasonable. Although I think outdoors things get dispersed so quickly and the, the, the droplets get swept away. And in fact, one of those videos that we shared, you know, kind of showed just by opening windows in a room, the droplets get swept out very, very uh, quickly. And so I kind of think outside is probably pretty low risk, although there's no big downside to giving each other uh, a little more birth. Uh, is there anything else exciting about COVID that you've learned since our last interview with you that listeners just need to know? I'll tell you what's making, what's, what's occupying most of my thoughts lately is the, um, 
is trying to get our arms around how many asymptomatic cases there are out there for every symptomatic case that we identify uh, for a few. And those estimates are right now um, kind of all over the place from anywhere from like maybe just a few percent to up to as high as 50% uh, of the cases might be without symptoms. And we just don't know. Most of the, the, these speculations are coming from very small studies. And we are about to get, and we talked, we alluded to this earlier. Uh, we are about to get antibody tests in our hands, and um, that's going to give us a, a much better estimate of the true scope of the epidemic. Um, how many people have already been infected without knowing it? How many people are already immune? How many of these people never had any symptoms? How many healthcare workers are already immune? Um, and uh, and how many people can we put on the front lines? And as I mentioned, our governor is really trying hard to get some of these uh, antibody tests in our hands. And I'm very anxious to get out there and try and answer some of those questions. Uh, I, I would love to know. I came down with my first case of the flu, you know, like February 27th. And I'm wondering, is there any chance that could have been COVID or was it just too soon? No, that's uh, when was that again, Tom? When did you February say? 27th, 103.7 fever, cough mm -hmm. so much I couldn't sleep, sickest I've been in years. Did you get tested for the flu? No. So I'd say the odds are it was the flu. <laughs> right, but, exactly. But, but um, you just hit on one of the groups I want to look at. So every state, or I think most states have what have clinics that are identified as being part of a state health department's influenza surveillance network. So they are obligated to provide samples to the state health laboratory with anybody with an influenza like illness at its peak, people coming into these clinics who are part of this surveillance program um, will test positive for flu about 30% of the time at its peak, 70% of the people presenting with a flu like illness don't test positive for the flu. Right. I want to go back and test those samples uh, for, for COVID and see how far back it was already uh, appearing in our community or identify those people um, if we still don't have their nasal pharyngeal swab and get a blood test on them for antibodies. And see, so, just like you. Just so like I you. could have an antibody test yes. uh, to, yep. to see. Yes. We talked about the choir in Washington and how there was a super spreader event. And this is Palm Sunday. And something just came uh, to me yesterday from my son. Both Chris and I have sons who are seniors at Walsh University in North Canton, Ohio. And they have a very creative uh, choir director there, uh, Dr. Britt Cooper. And uh, they performed a song called Do Not Be Afraid. And we're going to link to it on our website uh, for the podcast because they did this virtually. Every member of the choir recorded their own part at home. And then Dr. Cooper mixed them all together for an incredibly beautiful um, rendition. Uh, so a little gift for Holy Week from, from us at Dr. Doctor. You were kind enough to send that to me, and it was beautiful. I listened to that uh, this morning and really enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Um, Chris, do you have any last comments before we sign off? No, I, I, Paul, as usual, thank you for the great information. Uh, I, I, I think in, in no uncertain terms, Do Not Be Afraid is an appropriate title uh, for something to, to think about. These can be scary, isolating times, but um, not to put too fine a point on it, we know how this story ends, and it ends with victory. <laughs> um, and great. being Palm Sunday as we enter Holy Week, we need to remember the ultimate victory over coronavirus and all other evils of the world. <laughs> well uh, said. Well that said. we will not be defeated by this or any other foe. 
Well, thank you, Paul. And thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.